This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. It is the Subway to Shea podcast. Anthony Rivera here with you talking about all the news and happenings surrounding that team from Queens, the New York Mets. You can follow the show on Twitter at Subway to Shea. Listen and subscribe to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Cast. Turn on those notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. Please also take a few minutes to write me a review. Let me know what you think of the show. You could do that on Apple Podcasts. What you like, what you don't like. I want to make this show better each and every week for you Met fans out there. And by rating the show one to five stars, hopefully you're giving me five stars, and leaving a couple of comments in the review section, that could only help me improve this show each and every week. If you're a new listener to the podcast, thanks for joining us. And if you are already a fan, thanks for your continued support. It's been a busy week here at Subway to Shea. I took part in a couple of YouTube live streams for New York Mets Talk Live with Tyler Ward. I can't thank him enough for always having me co-host with him when he needs a co-host and I appreciate him. Also joined Mets Weekly this week with Frank Carson and Hayden. You can check all those links out. I'm going to put all those links for those videos in the description on the description page of this week's Subway to Shea. Guys, it's a great show today. I'm not going to take up much of your time because we have the director of the ESPN 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, Nick Davis, joining the show. What a great conversation I had with him. I recorded it earlier on in the week, and I wanted to allow you guys to watch the four-part series just like I did. And then I got Nick Davis on. We recapped the show. Got a nice little tidbits in there. So let's get into this interview. I'm not going to take up much of your time because it's a long one. It's about an hour, so you can listen to the thing in full or... You can break it apart in pieces and listen when you like, but listen to the entire interview. It's a great interview. I enjoyed it, and I think you will enjoy it too, especially if you're a fan of the 1986 Mets. So without further ado, here is episode 38 of the Subway to Shea podcast. Mets fans, I have a treat for you today because joining me now on the Subway to Shea podcast is Nick Davis. Nick is an accomplished writer, director, and producer. He has worked extensively in TV and film. His latest project is directing the four-part ESPN 30 for 30 titled Once Upon a Time in Queens, which covers the amazing run of the 1986 world champion New York Mets. Nick, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Anthony. How are you doing? It was so great getting to sit down and dissect each and every episode of this four-part series. Now, when I heard this project was being announced, I was really excited myself. I know a lot of fans who feel like they already know this team's story. They know the rise and the fall. But for me, a guy born on November 14th, 1986... And never, oh. see, <laughs> never seen these guys play. It was an absolute blast. I enjoyed every minute of it. A wonderful film. I know everyone has a unique story as to how they became a Mets fan. For me, it was seeing the neon lights of Shea at night when my parents would drive past, you know, Flushing Meadow Park and the mm-hmm. marina. So I have to mm-hmm. ask you, how did you become a Mets fan? Uh, well, I have no memory of not being a Mets fan. My first memory is uh, what they call a screen memory which means it's fake and it's of being in the dining room when I was four years old watching the Mets win the World Series on our black and white Zenith. I know that didn't happen. I've talked to my parents about it later and they were like, no, no, we didn't watch and you weren't there. And that, so I I don't know how I became a Mets fan. I just have no memory of not being a Mets fan. And from, you know, from, from then on, I'm, you know, I, I do remember very important Mother's Day in 1972. I was seven. We went to Shea. It was Willie Mays' first game as a Met. 
we had bought tickets um, because we loved Willie Mays. We loved the Mets and we loved Willie Mays and the, and the Mets were going to be playing the Giants. So we bought uh, the tickets because the Mets were playing the Giants and Willie Mays was on the Giants. And um, then lo and behold, he was traded to the Mets before that game. And that was his first game. And he walked in the first inning, scored on a rusty stub and slam. Uh, the Giants tied the game, and then he hit the home run that that won the game five to four. And it was just like the greatest day of my childhood. And and then you know I would say you know I, I believe that the end of my childhood was June fifteenth, nineteen seventy seven, when uh, the Mets were playing Atlanta, and all night long we were listening by the radio, and um, you know it, we knew that Seaver possibly was going to be traded and at the end of the night he was traded to Cincinnati and it was just like what happened um and this was in the middle of uh you know the Ford to City drop dead days and and of of New York City and it just felt like the city is in the toilet and the team is now in the toilet and how is this ever going to you know not be miserable and so that's where the film starts you know that's where in in my mind that's where the the epic saga of the 1986 Mets begins is with that misery of uh, 1977. So I don't know. That's a sort of a long way of answering your question. But, you know, from for, for in terms of my my Met fandom, um, you know, I went from, you know, having as my favorite player Tom Seaver to having as my favorite player Bruce Beauclair. And and that sort of exemplifies what happened to the Mets in the late 70s. And now we, as we go on to, you know, the big run from 84 to 86, as it was mentioned, that kind of like trilogy, where were you kind of like in life during that whole time getting to enjoy that, you know, that whole run? Uh, well, you know, it, it began really when Cashin uh, was hired, when, really when Doubleday bought the team in January of, of 1980. And it's fascinating that you were born in November of 86, because I think that the overlook, there's a very overlooked thing that happens in November of 86, which we can get to in this podcast and we kind of touch on it in the in the film but but not not really we just didn't have time to go into it but in january of 1980 that's when it began because doubleday bought the team it was the 80s and you just felt like well maybe good things are going to happen and doubleday rich guy nice good good bearded man knew he didn't know anything about baseball bought the team and hired frank cashin and frank cashin the hiring of a guy who had built world championship teams or been you know, responsible for world championship teams and a great series of Baltimore Orioles teams in the 70s, a kind of mini dynasty that changed everything. And uh, and then the next thing you know, I'm 15 years old and we are drafting a player with the absurdly glorious name, Daryl Strawberry. Mm -hmm. And all we're told about him is he's the black Ted Williams. And just like these things started to happen and you start to feel like, okay, the pieces are coming together. And, you know, one by one, it started to just really turn around and you started to feel like maybe this really could happen. So that's, you know, that's where I was. And then, you know, I mean, Daryl's first game, I went to, you know, the incredible thing that last year, uh, you know, when the pandemic changed everything for, for everybody and, mm -hmm. and for production, production was shut down and, and then we sort of got back up on our feet and we did the shoots mostly remotely. So I would be in my office in New York City and we would hire a local crew in Los Angeles or Georgia in the case of Ray Knight or Southern California with Kevin Mitchell or Northern California with Billy Bean. And I would zoom in and they'd put the laptop next to the camera and I would talk to the interviewee and it worked really well. It had obviously some drawbacks and, you know, sort of budgetary restraints meant right. that we didn't get as many interviews done as we would have otherwise. But I made one trip. I made one trip during the pandemic. I flew to St. Louis to actually interview Daryl Strawberry in person. And a few nights before I went, my father found a note that he had slipped under my door the morning of May 6, 1983. And it said, hey, Nick, you want to go to Shea Stadium tonight? It's going to be Daryl's first game. Wow. Seaver's pitching. Let's go. And so I took that note to to St. Louis and I showed it to Daryl at some point in a in a you know profoundly unprofessional moment in the interview. <laughs> when we got to that point, he was like, No, he, he actually thought it was really kind of cool and it was it was neat. But um so that's where I was. I was a high school senior at that point, uh in eighty three. And then I went off to college and the team scaled the heights in eighty four, eighty five, eighty six, as Chuck D said, and you you quoted it was a trilogy. And uh yeah, it was quite a time to be a Mets fan. And then all these years later, 
as a filmmaker, I've made films about things that I don't know anything about. And that can be really great because then you wade into a subject and you wrap your arms around it and then try and tell what you've learned to people. Um, but it's, it's very different when you're making a film about something that you know as well as I, I thought I knew the 86 Mets. And, and it's, a, uh, passion, and it's a passion project. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that goes without saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, this was, um, this was something I really had to do. And I remember in 2010 or 11 reading in the trades about uh, the 86 Mets is going to be turned into a documentary. And I was so furious. <laughs> I just thought, how did I not get myself in a position? Why am I not the one doing it? And, you know, thankfully for me, it, that project fell apart, didn't happen. Um, and I was able to, you know, then through a wonderful series of circumstances get to a position where I could make this happen and it's been an absolute dream from start to finish now I don't want to really go into what's going on nowadays but there is kind of a comparison that I wanted to make and that is you mentioned you know 1980 is the turning point because yep. double no, day took happening. over it's, it's happening look I think this year I know we don't um, you're not you didn't bring me on as a met expert to talk <laughs> about now but I think it's I, I feel, of course, awful, as we all do. Like, I've not, but I don't know why it didn't work this year. These are good players. And, um, you know, manager aside, I feel like I don't know what's happened and why right. this team did not play better. Um, not that it's over, you know. I mean, if 86 taught us anything, it's never over until it's over. But it certainly feels over. Um, but I feel very confident that Cashin, uh, excuse me, look at that, but that, that uh, Steve Cohen is going to, uh, right the ship, and 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 we're going to have a consistently winning team very very soon. Well, my um, question is: Did you feel? Do you feel that it's the same? Did you feel like the same way? Like when Doubleday took it over from, which is probably worse than the Wilpons, M. Donald Grant. Did you feel the same way as you felt now when Cohen took over? Is it that same kind yes, of energy? Yes. Yeah. It's even better. I mean, M. Donald Grant was actually gone by 1980, so there wasn't the the ding dong the witch is dead feeling uh that there is now i mean the very nice man fred wilpon and i don't mean to you know uh, but the, the the you know financial constraints that they operated under as well as their just meddling ways that that is gone is exactly how we felt in 1980 like okay and this guy is going to hire smart baseball people and they're going to turn the ship around. He's got deep pockets and he'll bring in the best people and, and it'll happen. And I, I do still feel that way. Uh, absolutely with Steve Cohen. And what, oh, what I was going to point out is, and what the, the irony of your birth month is January of 1980, Nelson Doubleday buys the team and he doesn't buy it himself. Doubleday publishing is the principal owner. And then in November of but, but because Nelson Doubleday is the way he is, He's a very gregarious fellow, but he doesn't want to be the face of the operation. So one of the minority owners, Fred Wilpon, he makes the face of the of the operation and he's the COO or whatever. And but at that point, Fred Wilpon is in for, I don't know, one or five percent, you know, not not very much money. And he's a you know successful businessman, but he doesn't have that much money. As the 80s take off and all this money flows into New York and the, the city comes back and the team comes back and there's this wild, unruly crazy, you know, energy in the city exemplified by the 86 Mets. Fred Wilpon earns a lot of money in real estate. So in 1986, uh, Bertelsmann, a German company, comes in to buy Doubleday Publishing. And Nelson Doubleday says, well, but I don't want to sell the Mets. I want to be part of the Mets. So I have to sell the Mets to myself from Doubleday Publishing to Nelson Doubleday. Fred Wilpon has a right of first refusal on any sale of the Mets, even if it's just Nelson essentially moving it from one bank account to another. And so he comes in and and becomes the official co-owner. And all that summer, these two guys are going at each other and negotiating this sale. And it's very contentious. And the sale goes through and Fred Wilpon becomes the official co-owner of the New York Mets in November of 1986. And they never won again. So I asked Joe McElvain during the interview I did with him, I said, I pointed that out to him and I said, so is that a coincidence? And he laughed and said, no comment. So I, I just, I, I'm sorry. This is not me as filmmaker. This is me as Mets fan. I, I'm, I am so happy 
that we have new owners. I, I can't even, I can't begin to tell you how happy I am. And you mentioned it was because so the contentious, other thing, I'm sorry, right? I, 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 it was, it was, oh, we all know Dwight Gooden. I mean, we don't all know, but Dwight Gooden missed the parade. Yes. I didn't know until I started working on this. Nelson Doubleday didn't go to the parade. Why didn't Nelson Doubleday go to the parade of the World Series team that he was the owner of? He didn't go because he was so unhappy over what had happened over that summer and that he was no longer the owner and that he had to be the co-owner with Fred Wilpon, who he knew, I think, was going to be a different kind of owner, an owner who would meddle and 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 think he knows baseball because he played high school baseball with Sandy Koufax. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I, I This is so just m me as Mets fan, and I know you wanted to talk about the film, and I'm happy to talk about the film. But the No, this other, is great. The other thing that drives me crazy is New York City is and, and certainly was a National League town. And the Giants and Dodgers move to the West Coast, and it leaves this huge hole, and the Mets come in, and immediately are the darlings of the city because they represent the people. They are not the elite of the Yankees. And from 1964 on, the Mets outdrew the Yankees consistently until the Seaver trade and the Yankees moved into new Yankee Stadium. And then for a series of years, the Yankees outdrew the Mets because they were the best team in baseball in 77, 78, made perfect sense. But when the Mets came back in the 80s, they outdrew the Yankees again. And for 21 out of 29 years after 1964, the Mets outdrew the Yankees. Then in the early 90s, as the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the 80s Mets fell apart under Wilpon and his management of the team, the city was sort of fed a new idea about the Mets. They're the little brother. They're the hapless little brother. The Yankees are the team in town. The Mets are just the hapless little brother. That was not how it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And that mythology that took place just drives certain Met fans like myself absolutely crazy. We are not the little brother. We're the heart and soul of the city. And so my, my deepest wish for Steve Cohen is that we're going to restore the rightful place of the Mets in the city as being, it's, it's, it's a National League town. Yeah. So anyway, and, my and, God, I really did not think I was going to be <laughs> on this soapbox. I, I so apologize. Well, no, you, you I, can, I mean, it makes sense because <laughs> it makes sense because Steve Cohen, just like yourself, grew up being a Mets fan. So he can kind right. of relate yeah. to what's going on. I'm pretty sure that yeah. him sitting on the sideline, seeing what's been going on over the last 20 to 30 years has yeah. kind of, you know, changed his thought process. I mean, we've gotten off to a rocky start. But let's not act like the entire Wilpon regime is gone. They didn't clean everyone out yet. So That's um, right. It takes a long time to turn around a tanker that is headed in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's just wild. It's just seeing both of these things happen kind of at the same time, but in different eras, is just like it feels like perfect timing when this film has now come out. And I gotta ask you, Jimmy Kimmel, he's involved with this project as an executive producer. How did that come about? Yeah, that was crazy and just totally great. I mean, that was like, uh, you know, that was like the Carter trade. You know, the la that was the last piece we needed to get on our way. <laughs> I had sort of gone to ESPN in the summer of 2018 and, and just had a sort of general meeting uh, after my last film, the Ted Williams film aired. And I'd already been talking to Major League Baseball about doing the 86 Mets and had some encouraging conversations with Nick Trotta, who is their main driving creative force for things like projects like this. And he's, uh, you know, wonderful, terrific guy. And, and so I was feeling like, I think we can make this happen. And I asked ESPN, like, why has it never happened? Let's do it. And they, and the guy at ESPN gave me a long list of things that I would need to do in order to, to make it happen. None of which really intimidated me. It was just like, you know, you need a really good proposal. You need a really good pitch. You need, um, except he said, and no offense to you, Nick, but you need an 800 pound gorilla in the room. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I did the outline, I did a pitch and uh, I got the Mets on board, had a terrific meeting with the Mets. And we were just about ready to go in and pitch it to a variety of networks when through a crazy set of circumstances, it became clear Jimmy Kimmel was interested in this story. He's a huge Mets fan and he loved the 86 Mets. And, and I had a meeting with him and I, you know, it, it was just sort of kismet. Um, and so I went back to ESPN, you know, six months later uh, after that. So it had been over a year from our first meeting 
And now I had the 800-pound gorilla in the room. I had Jimmy Kimmel to be the executive producer. And the ESPN, you know, had a terrific meeting. And, and that executive was now one of, I don't know, 12 guys, 12 executives, men and women, in that room. And as we're filing out of this meeting, uh, he pulled me aside and he said, nobody has ever listened to me before. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I actually got the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West, which is what he told me to do. Um, so... And Jimmy was great. He was great from start to finish. I knew he would be great helping us sell it, and I knew he would be great helping us promote it. I had no idea that he and cousin Sal, Sal Iacono, his cousin, and, and you know, I had no idea how good they would be during the making of it and how instrumental they would be, how smart they would be at giving notes. Uh, and, and Jimmy, you know, you know, if you want to get a celebrity, uh, you know, it helps a lot, you know, that you've got Jimmy Kimmel on your side if you want to interview you know, John McEnroe or Cindy Lauper or Chuck D or any of these guys, Mike Tyson, you know, um, these people who were meaningful in 1986 that um, we wanted to be part of the film. So the 30 for 30 is called Once Upon a Time in Queens, but I know on Twitter you listed some other possible titles. Can you talk about a few of those and why you eventually went with Once Upon a Time in Queens? Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, you'd have to remind me of the ones I listed on Twitter. I was really, you know, I, I really wanted a great title. And um, and and so I, I sent out to everybody who was working on the film, we did like one of these Google Docs and, and said, you know, just throw every title you can think of on there. And... Um, I should check with Nick Trotta because he didn't. So people would just, and I said, you know, no title is bad and, you know, just anything. Mm -hmm. And so people would just write all over the, the Google Doc and all these titles would come forward. And I remember the first time I saw Once Upon a Time in Queens, I hated it. It just it hit me hard. And I was like, ooh, oh, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that one. And as the time went by, people, it was anonymous. I think it was Nick Trotta of MLB who, who threw it on the, on the Google Doc. Um, as time went on, I kept coming back to it. And then I started polling everybody who was working on the film. And I just felt like, you know, I had been asking all the interviewees all along, you know, tell me the story of the 86 Mets. The, the last question in the interview that I asked everybody was, tell me the story of the 86 Mets as if it were a fable, beginning with the words once upon a time. And because it did always feel like this sort of fabulous myth to me, you know, and, and who can know the truth and, you know, how many, how much money did it, that bill from the airplane uh, company, you know, when they destroyed the plane coming back from Houston, how much was that? Like there's all these sort of tall tales about the 86 Mets. But anyway, so that, that's how that title emerged. And it was, uh, it was just always the strongest title. Um, and, you know, there were, there, I love the word swagger. I always felt like, ah, oh, the word swagger keeps coming up. And, and, you know, I wanted the title to reveal itself to me as we edited it. And, and it, and it kind of did, it just seemed to be the, the, the best title for the piece. But yeah, I mean, I loved a lot of the titles, uh, you know, I don't know. I got a couple the here. Satans of, yeah. Yeah. I got a season of swagger. You have the Lords yeah. of Chaos, a lovely yeah. light, which that one kind of confuses me. I don't know too much about that one. Uh, yeah, that one came from so that one came from an Edna St. Vincent Millay poem, and uh, my sort of right arm of the project, Lincoln Farr, a producer, he 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 suggested that because the type because the poem is something like you burn fast and die young. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like you burn your candle at both ends, and so it, it was good. But uh, yeah. And then, and then his son suggested one that I really liked, which was Satan's of Shame. Yes, um, which was 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 a good one. But um, yeah, a season of swagger I always kind of liked. But you know, when you poll people, you know, and and it does, and something can get a response, you know, unless you love it. I mean, and, and you know that 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 tells you something. Um, but once upon a time in Queens, I mean, there were people on our team who just all along was like, you know didn't like it but didn't like it violently you know and and having a violent reaction to something is usually an indication um that that it, it's worth listening to or worth you know paying attention to well something that i love deeply about film and television just in general is the soundtracks and musical score and the mm. one for this one you know was put together so beautifully there was so much good music coming from Jimi Hendrix and Billy Joel. You got Tears for Fears, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, LL Cool J, so much more. What was the process like putting together the right song to the right moment in the film? Oh, well, uh, first of all, thank you. I, I it, it meant a lot to, to me and to all of us on the production. I mean, it was, 
there was no, you know, we were really lucky. We, we, we were lucky because we had a, a we had a, a subject matter that um, that several networks wanted. And therefore, there was actually a little bit of a bidding war. And therefore, the budget was healthy enough to afford great music. And so, you know, you get to play with these, this, this epic, you know, these wonderful songs that mean so much. You know, every song was like sort of different. Well, how did you get the Hendrix song? Well, the Hendrix song came about because the Hendrix estate just happened to have a meeting with Nick Trott at Major League Baseball and said, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're open for business. We'd like to be in, in films and stuff. And so he approached me and said, you know, like, God, could we use a Hendrix song? I was like, yes. Would we, when the Mets win the World Series in 69, like we had something that was sort of vaguely psychedelic. But there was just, you know, essentially a, a, a needle drop that we were going to have to pay, you know, $250 for or something. And so, you know, every song was sort of a different story, how we got it. But it was, you know, the most fun. I mean, one of the most fun things to do is, is work that way. And then we have a great original composer, Joel Goodman, who scored a lot of other parts of the film to try and sort of, you know, keep that energy and that dynamism of the 80s going. Yeah, and his epic Mike Scott scary uh coming to the mound. That was that that was him too. Uh that that sort of horror movie yes. when Mike Scott shows up. Yes, and Joel told me I can't remember what the name of that instrument is, but it's got it's a it, if you google like, you know, horror movie instrument, <laughs> it's called something like a like a, a I don't know, a dangle phone or something. And it uh, yeah, so Joel used that for 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 that because we wanted, as Eric Sherman says, you know, you know the 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 I think it may have come because he Eric Sherman described it as like the Mets were you know scared little children and mm-hmm. Mike Scott was Freddy Krueger, <laughs> um, which was like a tip off for us, like oh great, let's use horror mo- movie music here. Um, yeah, it was so fun, and you want you know when you have a four hour you know canvas uh, to to paint on, you want variety, and so you want the sort of poppy 80s stuff and then anthemic things like tears for fears and um you know rat and you know punk and it was just and then you know the theme song uh or what became the theme song for for the film was this great tom Waits song Mm -hmm. clap hands which to me you know it's very dark it's not like the rest of the film it's really sort of telling people hey it's a lot of fun but it's a dark fairy tale and it implicates all of us you know the first line sane sane we're all insane you know and clap hands you know clap hands like we're there at the circus and we're loving what we're seeing but it's not necessarily the healthiest thing in the world and this is not just all about the mets either You also gave us a feel for what is like living in New York City during that time. You talked about it earlier on. My favorite reference from Billy Bean, and I think it was Ed Lynch, too, talking about their time in New York, and you put in one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, The Warriors, was referenced in it. After seeing this finished product of the film, did it bring back any memories of growing up in that era? Oh, yeah, totally. Because I think the thing that struck me, and it was really reinforced when we talked to these people, is like, the Mets and the city really became one, you know, mm-hmm. as Joey Petruccio says, like, as this team got better, the city got better. I don't know that the Mets had anything to do with it. That's what Joey says, but he felt that way. And then all of a sudden by the mid eighties, the city has completely turned around from where it was in the seventies. It's still dirty. It's still gritty. It's still grimy, but there's an energy and an upbeat optimism even amidst all the wildness and unruliness and danger um, that the Mets just, just, there's a swagger to the city and no team has ever had more swagger than the 1986 Mets. And so like, yes, that was something that we went into wondering about, is this really true? And, and it really was, I mean, talking to all of them, they all felt like the the people who were there just felt like somehow this, this, city and the team blended and became one it wasn't not just that the new york mets were the most popular team in town it was that the new york mets had somehow blended into the city yeah and that was just that's the film right there that's the film we wanted to make well we get some great insights from the players in this and two that stand out the most to me is lenny dykstra and keith hernandez so i want to get into both of those with you i know lenny's very controversial But you captured him, I think, at his best. If he's not cursing and being himself, I feel like it doesn't come off as uh, genuine. So I thought what he added to the film was great. How was it working with him? 
It was great. I mean, it was one of the most uh, intense, wonderful uh, experiences of my professional life. I was in New York City. He was in Los Angeles. Um, we had a crew in Los Angeles. I was Zooming. It was our first Zoom interview. And we, you know, the pandemic, you know, shut us down for a couple of months. We came back to work. We had a new plan, you know, COVID protocols. You know, we took Lenny's temperature before the interview started. Um, and we placed a laptop right next to the camera. So he's looking at me in New York City right next to the, you know, an image of me on a, on a laptop. Mm -hmm. And it looks like he's just talking to, you know, whatever, whoever's off camera. Now these documentaries work. And I wonder if that focused him more it, it, because, you know, you, he really had to pay attention to this, you know, the laptop. Um, but he was just, uh, he was just incredible. It was an, inc he was so open, so available, so wanted to talk. And and was was open and and you know as he is in the movie he's funny and profane and and sometimes hard to understand and and sometimes hard to understand because he's sort of slurring his words and sometimes hard to understand because his train of thought <laughs> might not be you know consistent with a, a normal person's train of thought but I think he's I think he's a you know he's a baseball savant and mm -hmm. I I think he's crazy like a fox. I think he knows what he's doing and he knows the effect he has on people. And as funny as he was, and he started off, he was so funny in the beginning. He was just, it was so profane. We couldn't use any of it. Um, the first five or seven minutes, I, I tweeted this, like I, I was laughing so hard I had to turn off the microphone <laughs> because he was, he was so dirty and so funny. And I was like, I was laughing. I was like, this guy, he could have been Lenny Bruce. I mean, he's so funny and like, you, you don't say these things and, you know, uh, and then he, he sort of settled down and we went through the whole story. And by the end of it, he was so open and honest about where he is in his life now, you know, and he said, I might, you know, look at my life now, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years, but it's okay. It's okay. Cause I won a world series in New York city. Where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? And it was like, to me, I was like, I was so struck in the, in the, I remember being in my office, just like so moved. And I felt like he started out as Lenny Bruce and he ended up as Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. <laughs> and I felt like what a gift. And I, I was drained by the end of the interview. I can't imagine what he felt like. I was just listening, you know, and then every once in a while, you know, chiming in and saying, I'm sorry, uh, do you mean amphetamines? Like I, you know, this sort of just, but, but he was just going and, and he laid out his whole life story. And um, I got a text from one of the editors uh, this week who said it was, it was such a privilege to be able to just watch Lenny Dykstra's complete interview that, that he, you know, was, it was just, it was really remarkable. And uh, I really hope he's doing okay. Cause he's quite an individual. With Keith, we got a little more intimate, look into his personal life, his childhood, whether it was growing up with his father or even the drug abuse early in his career. Was it hard to pry away some of these memories from Keith? Because he's he's kind of a more of a private guy. Yeah, he is more private. He's a little more guarded. At, but but he, he was ready to tell the stories, too. I think because he's now he's such a public personality and such a celebrity and, and so good on TV and, and knows what he's doing, he might sort of come across as as less emotionally accessible than he really is. But I think he, he really decided like, okay, you're gonna tell the whole story, we'll, we'll tell the whole story. And I was not prepared for the level of detail that he went into about his very complicated and nuanced relationship that he had with his father, that he brought up, you know, I didn't say, well, are there any movies that your father and your relationship is like? Uh, like he just brought up out of nowhere that his relationship with his father always reminded him of Fear Strikes Out. Well, Fear Strikes Out is about a man who is like driven sort of crazy by his domineering father, Carl Malden, drives, you know, Tony Perkins, who would later go on and play, you know, Norman Bates. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's like, this is your reference point for your relationship with your father? That was fascinating to me and very revealing of where Keith, you know, how Keith sees his, his childhood. And he also was incredibly generous, just like literally by, you know, letting us use his home movies. You yes. know, his father had his mother 
come to every game with a you know eight millimeter film camera um, when it was not easy to have an eight millimeter film camera. You know, it's not like everybody had their cell phones. It was like, oh, we're going to go buy an eight millimeter film camera so that we can film the boys at bat. You know, Keith and his brother Gary, and how amazing, you know, that Keith's brother's name is Gary. I mean, if this were a Hollywood story meeting, they would say. Don't do that. Change that. It's too obvious and it's going to confuse people that the bro his brother's name is Gary and then he becomes one of the co-leaders of the team with mm -hmm. Gary Carter. Too confusing. <laughs> Don't do that. You know, but it's like, it, you know, there were so many gifts to us as storytellers during the making of, of this film. And, you know, certainly a, a literal gift was the, the ability to use those home movies. Now, we all know or have even heard of Doc and Daryl's struggles in life with drugs and, you know, family problems. One thing that kind of really scared me watching this was Doc talking about asking for the, you know, quote unquote, the Len Bias stuff. You know, as we know, mm. Len Bias was the number one overall draft pick for the Boston Celtics in the NBA draft. Later on in the day, he was found dead with a drug overdose of cocaine. When you heard Doc telling this story, what was your reaction to that? Like, my initial reaction, I got, you know, kind of tense, nervous about hearing that. Yeah, I was sort of disbelief. What he first said, you know, was, yeah, the first few hours, you're pretty scared. You know, because I, in, in the summer of 86, I was in New York City and bias died and it was shocking. It was one mm -hmm. of those moments where you remember where you were and it's like, wait, what? This guy is the greatest athlete. Like, how could this happen? And given the cocaine that was prevalent everywhere, you did sort of think, well, everyone's going to kind of tighten up now and, and we'll stop this. Right. And, but, you know, by the summer of 86, there were rumors and, and whispers about about the Mets and even among, you know, the, the fans, we tended to know that they were out there partying and having a good time and we didn't know who and exactly what. Um, so I, I thought, oh, well, I, I know we want the Len Bias thing to be part of, of the story because he that was such an, a, a big event. And I wonder how it affected Doc because it later came out that he was actually doing drugs in 86. So I asked him and he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's the first four or five hours you get a little scared, but then you go to your dealer and say, well, give me this, give me this, give me the Len Bias stuff. Give me the strongest stuff you have. And, you, you know, Doc is so open about it. And he says, like, can you imagine what your brain must be like where that's how sick I was at the time that that was the, mm -hmm. the thought process? It's uh, it's remarkable. You know, Doc and Daryl have been blamed for the demise of what could have been a dynasty. I think they were part of the problem, but I do think that they were unfairly blamed to the full extent um, I think Frank Cashin should have to take more heat for this. You know, God rest his soul. But as much as he did to put this together, and he did do a lot to tear it apart. Like it was mentioned in the film, the trading of Kevin Mitchell, letting Ray Knight walk at the end of the, you know, at the end of the season. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think Frank Cashin, as much as he made this team rise, it also was a part of the team falling, or the way he handled things? Well, he was. And I think... To be fair to Cashin, for a moment, before we criticize his decisions, Howard Johnson was, you know, I don't want to say languishing on the bench, but Howard Johnson was a really promising young player who had not had a lot of at-bats in 85 and 86, and then they picked him up from Detroit after 84, and he was ready to start and ready to play and ready to go at third base. And what does he do his first year? He's a 30-30 guy and becomes an almost consistent 30-30 guy and one of the league's top power hitters. And Kevin McReynolds was a player that the Mets had long had their eye on, and they wanted to stabilize left field because it was a position that, you know, would, what happened with Foster and is Mitchell going to be an everyday left fielder? What, where's Mitchell going to play? Does he belong in the infield, the outfield? So from a strictly baseball standpoint, and Cashin always felt like you can't stand Pat. You, you cannot stand Pat. You have to get every year is different. You know, you can't step in the same river twice. And so I got to make some moves just to just for that reason alone. What I think he completely missed or or didn't value enough is the importance of team chemistry. And it is the thing that cannot be measured by analytics. And, you know, I, I know that the analytics people can say, no, no, because you can measure it because you can measure what the result is on the field. But the fact is, you can look at Ray Knight and say, well, he had a really good year. He had 298, you know, and he won World Series MVP. But we got this young guy there. But why not sign him to a two-year contract and say, 
you know, compete for the job. And if you don't get it, you'll back up Keith at first base. You'll play a little third base, and you'll be the right-handed pinch hitter. Maybe you'll only get 180 at that. So that'll be Davey's job to make sure you're fresh. Whatever. I, but, but Ray Knight's importance to that team and Kevin Mitchell's importance to that team, to the chemistry, cannot be overstated. And I think that that's what was missed. And you bring in a solid, dependable player like McReynolds, who, as Lenny Dykstra said, he didn't really like baseball. He was out mm-hmm. of the clubhouse as soon as the game's over. You know, the 86 Mets would stay after the games and talk baseball and let the uh, the parking lot, you know, empty out and, and drink beer and just talk about the game and talk baseball and talk about their at-bat. And when you've got people on the team who, you know, don't have that fire and don't have that interest in the game, it's going to affect the the play of the team and then you know most crucially they knew they had troubles they they knew that daryl and doc had troubles and that there was too much partying and too much carousing going on and you can't get rid of daryl strawberry or dwight good they're the faces of the franchise you can't trade either of those guys well here's this other young black guy let's get rid of him and i do think that kevin mitchell was largely scapegoated and shipped out of town as as a result of that and i think it's it's unfortunate i also frankly am not 100 percent convinced that it it was only uh frank cashin's doing you know you did have now a new co-owner in november mm-hmm. of 86 and a new co-owner who cared a lot about public image nelson doubleday drank vodka and uh, with the guys and in, unfortunately you know it's in the six and a half hour rough cut he he would you know he had vodka around the batting cage and he was a fun-loving you know partying kind of guy and i don't think he was bothered at all by the fact that the the team was out and out and about and you know carousing and having a great time so long as they were winning and they were winning 108 games so i don't think it bothered him and i think it probably did bother uh, and, and we saw it in later years. I mean, you know, the, the subsequent ownership would say, well, when are you going to marry this girlfriend of yours? And, and things like that, where you're just like, this is a baseball team, you know, mm-hmm. let them. What's the most important thing here? The most important thing to the 1986 Mets was winning. And yep. it was never that way again. I mean, it was in Davy Johnson's mind, and he tried to keep it going that way in the in the clubhouse. But you now had an owner who had other ideas about how things should should be run. So, you know, we didn't have time for it to really delve into it in the film, but I'm not 100% convinced that it was only Frank Cashin's idea to make some of those trades. Now, then you get into trades that make absolutely no sense, like Dykstra for Sam Well. Oh, and we'll throw in Roger McDowell. I mean, I'm going to trade you my center fielder for a guy who's never played center field, and I'm going to add in one of the league's best uh, relief pitchers. Yeah. What's that about? I mean, that one made no sense. Um, and, 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 you know, whatever it was, it was over. You need, you know, it, it was, it was, it was over at that point. Well, going back to Ray Knight, I didn't realize how huge of an impact he made on this team in his tenure. You always hear Keith and Gary, obviously you hear doc and Daryl heck they're on the cover of the poster, but Ray seemed right. to be the anchor. He kind of felt like the hybrid between Keith and Gary. He was a little clean cut, but he also had the badass mentality about him. Do you agree with that? Totally. That's a great way of putting it. I never thought of it that way. I mean, I've thought of him as the glue and sort of, you know, you know, sometimes in the edit room, you're like, well, who's John and who's Paul? You know, like is, is Gary, is Gary kind of Paul and Keith kind of John. And there were, there were John guys on the team. And then there were Paul guys on the team, you know, doing the sort of Beatles thing. And it's like, all right, well, I guess I guess that makes Ray Knight George Harrison, you know, and he was so important to that team. And, you know, when you're making a film like this, you the, the stuff you leave out, some of it, you know, haunts you. But for the most part, you know, you're telling one story. So you're leaving out a whole bunch of great stories because you're trying to tell a complete story. But there is one story that that I do wish we found a way to get in there about Ray's leadership, which was him stopping a fight on a team bus between Carter and Strawberry. Mm-hmm. And he, he got in between the two of them and he said, we're not going to fight each other. And that was key, you know, and and I do think that that, you know, management just you know, they, they weren't there. They're not in the locker room and they, they don't see what's happening and they didn't get a read on how important it was to have somebody like that on, on the team. And, you know, I think, yeah, I think he was, he was a quiet leader in that locker room. Once again, I'm here with Nick Davis. Nick is the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 titled Once Upon a Time in Queens, 
which covers the amazing run of the 1986 world champion New York Mets. Now, a big part of the story that some people may or may not realize is this whole George Foster saga. He came here in hopes of turning this team around. That was the big move at the time. He had a subpar run. He had a controversial exit, but it kind of led to the return of the, you know, the hometown boy, Lee Mazzilli. What are your thoughts on this whole George Foster run? It's a fascinating part of the story, George Foster, how it didn't work out, but it was a signal to Mets fans, but more important to the rest of baseball. When Cashin brought in George Foster, it was like, we mean business. Like, we're, we're getting a superstar. And, and the Mets had not been run like that, you know. The Mets had never gotten a free agent, you know. They, they would bring on, you know, an aging player. But I don't think they'd ever landed a big player like that in years. And then the other crucial thing is, you know, it didn't work out. Foster had a really terrible first year. He recovered a little in 83, 84, 85, and had, you know, some decent years. Um, but he never really fit in with the sort of bullying, swaggering Mets that was being formed in those years. And he never really fit in in the clubhouse. And so when he really stops hitting in the summer of 86, like late June, early July, and you've got this great rookie, Kevin Mitchell, and Mookie comes back off the disabled list, and you've got Dykstra now, it's like there's no place for him. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's benched and he, he doesn't take it well at all. Uh, and he sort of sulks and stuff and then, you know, has a, a very unfortunate conversation with a reporter where he's trying to be careful and nuanced and begins his statement by saying, I'm not saying it's a racial thing, yeah. but, you know, and then he goes on and it's like, I'm sorry, you use the word racial. That's it. You're calling us racist. And the next thing you know, he's off the team. And uh, they had Lee Mazzilli, who had been released by the Pirates. They picked him up in a, for a minor league contract. So he was there, ready to go, and fit in much better on the team and was willing to come off the bench in a way that Foster literally was, wouldn't come off the bench. He, wouldn't, he, he didn't want to come off the bench and pinch hit. And he didn't come off the bench in that you know famous fight against the Reds in, in July of 86. Uh, and, you know, baseball fights, you got to come off the bench. Like, you don't have to do anything. You can stand around and yammer, but you can't just stay on the bench. And so the rest of his team, you know, he, he kind of lost the team at that point. And then, you know, a few weeks later to then say, I'm not saying it's a racial thing. It's like, that's it. That was the last straw. And he was released. And it's very sad. What's incredible, and this is the, this, you know, another one of these finds that we didn't know about. We talked to Ann Ligori, a broadcast yes. time journalist, and she told us a story that was just incredible, which is George Foster was doing some kind of corporate event during the 86 World Series, and Ann Ligori in the 10th inning, it's down 5-3. The whole press box is emptying out and getting ready to go down to interview the world champion Boston Red Sox, and George Foster suddenly appears. And he's in a business suit, and he says to Ann, don't go anywhere. It's not over yet. So at his heart, George Foster knew the character of this team. And I think he also sort of had a little of that swagger himself. He had those great sideburns. And at his famous first press conference, he says he warns the airplanes at LaGuardia not to fly <laughs> too low because, you know, when I'm up. And it's like, that's a great kind of swaggering 1986 Mets kind of thing to say. So I hope we did his story justice in the film because a lot of people forget that he was on that team. Yeah, it's a very important piece of everything that went down leading up to them winning the World Series. Now, I want to get back to Gary and Keith. It's made clear that Keith was really the leader of this team. They kind of, you know, pushed that right in there. He was the player's leader and they didn't take to Gary mostly because they felt like he didn't really fit in the clubhouse. You know, I, I really wish that Gary was still around so we could kind of get his thoughts on what happened. So, you know, rest in peace, kid. Did Gary's wife feel a certain way about what was said at all? Or did Gary ever convey to her his feelings on this situation? Oh, I think that Gary, I think they were worried about Gary before he joined the Mets. I think that a lot of his teammates in, in Montreal didn't like him and were envious of him because he got so much attention and because of his just funny personality. And they thought he was a phony. And, and Daryl says in our film, like, you know, a lot of us, like we, we just didn't 
we didn't get it. We didn't, we didn't believe it. Like, why is he smiling all the time? Why, no one can be happy, so happy all the time. But they respected him, and Keith respected him. And there were definitely Gary guys on the team. I mean, he was a leader of that team. He, he ran that pitching staff. Now, they, he may not have known as much about pitching as he, you know, thought he did. You know, I mean, you know, there's that story that, that Perlman tells, like, you know, like Hernandez coming to the mound after, yep. after Carter does. And, and, but, but, you know, Hernandez didn't know everything about pitching either. And Dwight Gooden gives Gary a lot of credit for his success in 85 and, and for how he dealt with the pitching staff. So I think that he did fit in and they, they really were kind of co-equal. I see them as, as kind of co-leaders of that team. You know, maybe Keith is 1A, you know, and, and, and Gary is 1B, but they were the yin and yang of, of the 86 Mets. No question about it. Well, once the playoffs take off on this film, it's a wild ride from the unhittable Mike Scott to you got Bobby Ojeda pitching with almost a dead arm. Then you go to the World Series <laughs> and we all know what happens there. I got to say, I love two things from those segments in the film. One is the home movies from the NLCS, along with the behind the scenes from game six of the World Series, whether it was following Mookie Wilson into mm. the um, into the clubhouse, or even, I thought even better, was the Red Sox locker room, them waiting with the champagne and then having to take everything down and rush before the players got back into the clubhouse. I thought that was mm. great. That's one thing. And then Vin Scully's game six call. I'm glad that you used that one. I love Bob Murphy, but I feel like the Vin Scully call is the essential call. Every time I watch it, I get goosebumps and can pretty mm -hmm. much recite it almost verbatim. But uh, yeah. just an absolute fantastic job putting this together, Nick. Uh, absolute. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, thank you. Uh, I we, we do hear Murphy's call as well. Yes. Uh, Murphy's Murphy's call begins the film. So I I wanted to have our our cake and eat it too. I mean the but I mean yeah there there was all this footage that you know if this you know if the Mets had won the World Series in '85 there wouldn't have been this footage in 1986 for some reason Major League Baseball uh, and and the Mets decided well let's have a crew follow you guys around a little bit so you know they were there when Mookie got hit in the eye in spring training and they had these side angles that have not been seen in some cases ever uh, but but certainly you know in years and the Mets did this great year-end video uh, called a year to remember that I think a lot of fans you know sort of remember getting for Christmas or 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 you know have in the years since uh, watched it and they used as much of it as they could but that was a one-hour film and they didn't have four hours to work with so they didn't use as much of it as we were able to and it's also been 35 years since that was made and and the shot of Mookie coming off the field uh, with the cameraman you know it's a shot that we sort of you know have come we're sort of used to it now mm -hmm. you know in games like the, the you know cameramans are always running on the field but it was it was kind of rare back then and to be with Mookie as he's running off the field and you know being pounded by his teammates and then cops in the dugout and then down the hallway into the you know to the clubhouse and then up the stairs and down the long corridor it's like it's such a great tracking shot it's just and it brings you to that time and place so perfectly it was such a it was such a wonderful thing to discover and and to be able to share with people now, i don't know if you feel this way but for me the biggest takeaway at the end of this film is wondering what could have been with this team do you think about that ever you know i think as a mets fan i went into this with more of that as a dominant idea it was like ah, oh, what could have been and i don't feel that way anymore i feel mm -hmm. more like what a gift yeah that we had this you know, and it's like, uh, you know, at one point we flash by a, a news report about Halley's Comet. It comes around once every, I don't know, 70 years or whatever. And it's like the Mets were like Halley's Comet that year. It was a, it, it, they streaked across the sky, you know, and we're leaving this tail that that is still visible all these years later. So I don't feel nearly as kind of depressed about they're not winning 
afterwards as I used to, <laughs> as I did at the time. I feel like it's great what they gave us. Are there any interviews that you didn't get that you kind of hoped for? I assume like George Foster was the maybe one of the big ones, but is there anybody else or is it just maybe George Foster? George Foster was the big one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I made my peace with it. Um, and I feel like we, we told the story as well as we could without him. Um, you know, I would love to have talked to Mike Scott. He also declined to be interviewed. Um, there was nobody else who I felt like, oh, we, I wish we'd had this person, you know, in the abstract, you know, if you told me three years ago, you're going to do this film and you're not going to interview a beat writer. I said, well, what, what? how is that going to happen? But just through, because of COVID and a whole series of things, like we just didn't. And then by the time we woke up and had a six and a half hour rough cut and still had an interview to a number of the players, you know, it just was like, well, I, I think we have the story. We don't need you know, we don't need more story. We need to we need to cut three hours from this film. So no, I mean it was really Foster who I would love to have talked to and and you know the way it worked and you know the Mets were so great and and Jay Horowitz who I'm sure you know you know it, you know he's he's so great and they all love him. Yes. And he was instrumental. So he would call people and say, hey, you know this guy's going to call you. You're going to do the thing. And he called me and said, I'm sorry, George said no. And I said, oh, will you let me talk to him? And he said, oh, hold on. You know, a few days later, he says, yeah, George is willing to talk to you. And I talked to him on the phone. I had a really funny conversation with George Foster. And he, he just didn't understand. Why would I want to talk to him? He wasn't a part of the story. He was gone. And I explained, like, no, we're telling the whole story. And you were a huge part of it. And I know it didn't end well. And anyway, he, he was really kind and gracious. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And then COVID hit. And a few months later, I circled back and said, hey, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to hire a crew in Cincinnati. They'll come to you, whatever's convenient. And he said, you know, I, I think I'm going to pass. And... He couldn't have been nicer or more gracious, but that was the most disappointing because I was like, oh, man, I would love to have talked to him and find out how he feels about all these things all these years later. So, yeah, yeah. I for for me, I think that um, I, I know that it didn't end too well for him, but I hope he understands how important he really is to, you know, just the turning around of this team, even if yeah. they released yeah. a, it, it was a big signing, a big trade and and. Right. It was really yeah, important I mean, to make is, that move. Yeah. Is is Lindor Hernandez or is Lindor George Foster? <laughs> you know, like to me, he's he's closer to Hernandez. He's mm -hmm. not. I don't think he's Hernandez. I think Baez might be Hernandez. But yeah, George Foster, it was very, very meaningful when they got him. Yeah. I said I would save my best question for last. So I got to know, mm. get mesmerized mm. or let's go, Mets go. <laughs> mm. 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 Well, I think I love them both the same in different ways, <laughs> as we say of our children. I don't know. I, what do you think? Well, I'm going to be biased because my first viewing of anything Mets was a VHS tape of the making mm. of Let's Go Mets Go. So oh, I love right. that song. Yeah, yeah. I can listen to it it's, all the time. It's, <laughs> it's an, you know, it's it's more of an earworm, you know, that, yeah. that Get to you, 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 you do find yourself sometimes just walking along singing, we got the teamwork to make the dream work. But um, I don't know. Uh, they're, they're both pretty classic. And, uh, you know, the lyrics of Get Metzmerized, I mean, I was looking at the, somebody had posted online who had a copy of, of the record, you know, the, the lyrics that they print on the back. And they're, they're just incredible. I mean, I like verses that we used, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Rhyming terror with Aguilera. It's, it's, it's some pretty good stuff. Well, what do you got coming up uh, next? What are you working on, Nick? Well, right now I'm actually promoting a book that I wrote that was published on Tuesday, the exact same day that this documentary aired. I wrote a book that I've been writing for the last 18 years or so that is finally published about my grandfather and great uncle. My grandfather was Herman Mankiewicz, who people may know was the subject of the Netflix movie Mank, starring Gary Oldman. And he wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. And his brother, Joe Mankiewicz, you know, a filmmaker and made All About Eve. And I wrote this book called Competing with Idiot, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait that is now available wherever books are sold. So just as I don't remember a time when I was not a Mets fan, I don't remember a time when my grandfather 
was not, you know, in my mind, the man who wrote the best movie of all time. Um, and he died well before I was born. And so I set out to investigate, uh, well, who was he really? And who was his brother, my great uncle, who we never saw? And why did we never see him? Like, he lived an hour away from us. And I, I like, well, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, what's going on here? So, uh, so it's a portrait of these two guys. And in the meantime, I'm now also developing my next documentary and a couple of other things that I'm pretty excited about. But yeah, so that's what's that's what's going on. Well, that's awesome. And uh, I can't uh, just thank you enough for giving me this time. I know we went a little bit over and I, I really just appreciate you coming on talking with me. Before I let you go, let everyone know where they could find you on social media, your website, what you got going there. Yeah, I'm trying with the social media. <laughs> As uh, as Steve Summers would say, with the social media, I am I am at I don't even know my Twitter handle. Do you? It must be Nick Davis Prods, right? Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get we're, we'll get to it. I'm, okay. I'm gonna bring it up right now. Okay, okay. I, I I think it's at Nick Davis Prod. That's so that's my Twitter thing. And um, yes, correct. You know, I, okay. And then I I whatever I do Instagram too, but it, not very seriously. Uh, I don't do Twitter seriously either, but but I, I know I'm supposed to. And I have a website, nickdavisproductions.com, uh, where you can see, you know, uh, you know, other things I've worked on and, and done in the past. And uh, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to talk like this about this project that has meant so much to me and um, that I am so happy to be sharing with the world now. And I know that your audience is probably mostly Mets fans and that's great. And that's a, that's a huge part of, you know, uh, who, who I made it for, but I made it for anybody who's interested in great stories. And um, some of the response that we've been getting from people who aren't Mets fans, who hated the Mets or who don't know baseball has been really terrific. Um, and, and that's, that's very gratifying too. Well, like I said, I was born a month or maybe 14, 15 days after the whole World Series went down. I so think, I think we should Google it. I think you were born on a, about the exact same day that Wilpon became co-owner. Ugh, I don't want to be linked so I'm to that. I'm not blaming you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was that a coincidence. And maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe you're the curse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't need that bad uh, juju on me. So um, no, but, no, 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 I'm, uh, I'm kidding. Anytime you want to talk any Mets, I would love to have you on again. This was a lot of fun for me. And uh, whether we're talking about Mets history or the current product, uh, I would, like I said, I would love to have you on again and we could do this more often. Uh, well, that would be great. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm obviously a huge Mets fan. And so I'm always happy to just talk about the current Mets and, you know, what's going on. Or if we want to talk about is Luis Rojas even watching the actual game? Um, because I, I sometimes feel like what's going on. He's, he's obviously not watching the game. Well, there was definitely um, some instances during the, you know, during the film with like Bobby Hojeda talking about, oh, I'm going to, you know, pitch even if my arm falls off. And then, you know, you see yeah. Luis Rojas saying, oh, but I don't want to push him. And I don't want, it's right. like, oh. Yeah. What are we doing here? Yeah. What, what's the goal here? Are we here to win? I mean, that that's the thing about the 86 Mets. And, and I was surprised because it's such a cliche, like, this team wants to win. And I asked all of them, like, well, aren't all teams, like, that way? Don't you? Are, and they were like, no, no, no. I've been on plenty of teams where it's not about winning. It's not like you don't want to win. Of course, you'd prefer to win. But the hunger, the desire that we're not going to take anything else but winning. You know, if you go three for four and the 86 Mets lose and you're smiling in the clubhouse because you got three hits, Ray Knight will punch you in the face. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not cool. Like, it's all about winning. And that's, you know, that's a great uh, feeling to, you know, have. And, and you just, as a fan, you, as a fan, that's all we care. You know, so it's sort of surprising. You know, Ojeda said, no, nah, Red Sox. When I was on the Red Sox, it wasn't about winning. You know, you, you wanted to do well. And, you yeah. Know, you want to win, but you want to get your hits, you know. Well, even Keith um, made that little snarky joke about analytics, and I just loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Wally, too. Wally makes a little joke about analytics, you know, or he may actually his is about replay. But, um, yeah, Ojeda says it's not X's and O's. It's chemistry, you know? Yeah. That's well, definitely I, how I, I, I saw it. it live. I DVR'd it, watched it again. Um, once again, great, great, awesome. Well, congratulations on you. it. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate it. And I'm sorry I go on at such length, but I do uh, – I'm just so happy that this thing that meant so much to not just me. I mean, we have a we had a fantastic production team that worked, you know, uh, just endlessly on this thing over the last year and a half, two years, and it's just it's wonderful to be able to share it with the world now. Awesome. Well, Nick, 
once again, thank you so much. And you have a great, great day. You take care of yourself. You, you too. All right. Thanks so much. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. That was Nick Davis, Nick, the director of the ESPN 30 for 30 four-part series titled Once Upon a Time in Queens, which covers the amazing run of the 1986 world champion New York Mets. So we're going to wrap up the show here. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you. If you're new, welcome aboard. If you've been listening, thanks for your continued support. Do me a favor. Please take a few minutes. Write me a review. Let me know what you think of the show. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. One to five stars on a rating. Hopefully you're giving me five stars. And leave some comments. Leave a review. That only helps me to help this show get better and better each and every week. You can follow the show on Twitter at Subway to Shea. Listen and subscribe to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Cast. Turn on those notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. You can also find Subway to Shea on YouTube. This podcast is available on the HSP Network. Catch me alongside the flagship podcast, the High Spot Podcast, which covers all things professional wrestling. Just search High Spot Podcast on YouTube or youtube.com slash High Spot Podcast and make sure to subscribe today. Well, that will do it for this week's episode. Always remember to listen, subscribe, share, and review. For Anthony Rivera, you've been listening to Subway to Shea. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.